This interview was recorded on Saturday, May 16th, 2020, and will be broadcast for the first time on KUCI on Tuesday, May 19th, 2020. Hello, everybody. This is UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and my guest today is Professor of English and Asian American Studies, Joseph Jen. Professor Jen is also the director of the Center for Critical Korean Studies at UCI. His most recent book was published last year and was titled Vicious Circuits, Korea's IMF Cinema and the End of the American Century. He was a Fulbright Senior Research Fellow in South Korea for 2016 to 2017. And though he is very happy in Irvine, he really does miss living in Seoul, which we can hear more about. Welcome, Professor Jen. How are you today? I'm great. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Before we get into some of the more meatier topics, can you tell us where you grew up and how your passion for English developed? Well, I was born in Seoul, but my family moved at a very young age. I was only a year and a half. We landed in the Cleveland, Ohio area, and I grew up in Buffalo, New York. And it's a sort of joke in my family. I, you know, I complained to my dad is like, you know, of all places, why, why <laughs> Buffalo like, could have chosen the whole United States. But I guess, that, I mean, at the t- he's a physician. And at the time, uh. there was a need for physicians in that area. Uh. Um, this is during the 70s and sort of migration of professionals out of the Rust Belt. Uh. So I grew up in Buffalo, New York. And, uh, you know, I was an immigrant kid. And I think my father And my family in general wanted me to go into the family business, become a doctor, like a lot of immigrant kids. And I just knew that (laughs) that wasn't my skill set. And in college, I went to Johns Hopkins, uh, which would have been perfect, actually, for a career in medicine. But I was more (laughs) interested in in literature. So Mm. it was strange. I mean, I was, um, you know, as an immigrant kid, you don't think about getting a PhD in literature. That just doesn't seem to be an available option. And it was a professor of mine that said, you know, you could do this if you wanted pretty good at this. So um, that's kind of how it started out. Yeah. As a adolescent, do you remember any particular things that you read or writers that you particularly enjoyed? I mean, I think I read what a lot of kids read in those ages. I read a lot of, you know, American modernist literature like Hemingway and Faulkner and Mm -hmm. uh, Fitzgerald. I read a book. The reason I wanted to go to Johns Hopkins is actually had nothing to do with science or medicine. I read a, a book by John Barthes called The Floating Opera. And it was his first novel, and I kind of loved it. And it, I found out that he taught at Johns Hopkins, and I decided that's where I wanted to go. But once I got there, I found out he hadn't taught undergraduate classes in like ten years or something like that. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I, I was a I, I was a kid that read a lot, just whatever was around. Do you remember any particular passage of something that you just always could remember? Of something I read, you mean? Yeah. Oh. Jeez, it's so long ago. I can't, yeah, yeah. It's... I, have a, I, I have a like very faint memory of childhood. I'm getting older now, so um, no, no, nothing that nothing that specific or nothing that detailed. Yeah. But I do yeah. remember just reading a lot when I was young. I do remember once when I was really young. There was this author. I think it's Clifford. I want to say Clifford B. Hicks. I have to check that. But he wrote this series of books about a child inventor, and I think I kind of really that sort of captured my imagination and like for a long time I tried to invent things in the same way that the protagonist did in the book and I actually wrote him the wrote the author and he, he actually wrote me back uh-huh. um, and that was kind of cool that was a, an early kind of uh, literary memory but yeah 
I bet. So did you go to Johnny Hopkins for your undergrad? Yes. Oh, okay. And then for and my then, PhD, I went to UC Berkeley. Yeah. When did your Fulbright Senior Research Fellowship occur? That was, I want to say 2016, 2017. The big historical thing happened was the candlelight movement and the impeachment of then President Pakane. Uh, so it was a kind of amazing, you know, accidentally, you know, I wasn't, didn't obviously intend to go there at that time. I didn't know, nobody knew that, that was happening. Was this a South Korean president? Yes. Can you remind us what that was all about? It started with Pakane had this advisor that was not a governmental official. It started with an iPad that apparently had their correspondences on it. There was all sorts of dissatisfaction and anger about administration, mostly having to do with the Seoul Ferry incident. A whole ferry full of school kids mm. died. And, you know, um, there was, uh, it was a very controversial event. And there's a lot of dissatisfaction with the way the uh, government handled the response. And so the candlelight movement was this series of mass protests. They happened on a regular basis. At the height of them, there were a million people in the, uh, you know, the central Kwangamun Square, this area and the area around it, demonstrating and protesting and demanding her removal. And so I went to a number of these protests. And I don't know if you've ever seen what a million people looks like, but it is pretty extraordinary. Is it? Um, yeah, I mean, it's... And, and it was a, it was also really organized. I mean, it wasn't just like people being angry for hours and hours. There were um, speakers. There was act, there was actually entertainment. There was like great street food. I remember very well that in my mind, the thing that I most associate with the protest is the smell of grilled squid. <laughs> this mm-hmm. like, actually thinking about those protests like weirdly makes me hungry because I love grilled squid. Um, <laughs> but it was an, an amazing time to kind of. I mean, you see the pictures in the newspaper and online, et cetera. But it's quite a different feeling actually being there. So I was fortunate to be there at this historic moment in this amazing time. So this was in South Korea? Yes, this is in Seoul. So how old were you then? Oh, this was just a few years ago. So oh. uh, yeah, I'm like, I was in my mid forties. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Now, after grad school, earning your PhD, did you go back to South Korea? Yeah. My wife, is. her parents still live in Korea. So we go back there every summer. I do a lot of research there in the summer as well. And I have some relationships with Yonsei University. They're uh, often, this summer I'm supposed to teach a graduate course there. And last summer I taught a graduate course there. Was the candlelight movement during your Fulbright? Yes, that was right during my Fulbright year. I see. So, and what is a Fulbright Fellowship all about? Well, there's a number of different kinds. The U.S. government program with, you know, programs all over the world. The one in Korea is based on the kind of strong historical partnership between South Korea and the United States. And there's different, you know, when I was there, there were senior researchers like myself, there were grad students, and and sort of everywhere in between. For me, I went there to uh, research the book that I just published um, that came out last year, Vicious Circuits, that you mentioned. But other people were there working on their dissertations or taking language classes uh, and even doing some teaching. So there's a lot of different, and it, you know, forms a little community while you're there, which is really nice. You know, they, they would have regular talks, some events. Uh, as a senior researcher, they asked me to participate in some of the uh, evaluation of candidates for the following year. Uh, they also send faculty and grad students to the United States. So it's a little bit of an exchange program as well. 
overall, it's a wonderful, wonderful experience. I hope it continues to be strong in, in years to come. Gotcha. How long have you been teaching at UCI? So this is my third year now. I, it, I just moved here recently. I was at uh, Pomona College uh, for about seven years before that. And then before that, I was in um, uh, the University of San Diego uh, for 10 years. So I spent my whole you know, academic career in a small area in Southern California. I'm pretty fortunate in that respect. What do you enjoy most about teaching? It's a great thing to do with, with your life, particularly, I mean, I went to UC Berkeley and so I'm a product of the UC system. And so, you know, for the early part of my career, for the majority of my career, I was in liberal arts college environments, which were lovely and nice. And I enjoyed my time in both of those institutions. But UC feels like home to me. I believe in the UC project. I believe in public education, so it's a really nice fit for me here. I enjoyed my interactions with the students, both undergraduates. We have an excellent graduate program, and it's amazing to be in conversation with my graduate students. It's what I should be doing, so I, it's nice when people find uh, professions or you know, uh, work that suits them, and this certainly does. What is it about Seoul? It sounds like you have friends and relatives in Seoul. Is, is there anything else that you can define as what draws you to that particular city in the world? Yeah, I mean, it's just a, a really vibrant city. It has amazing food. It's really high energy. I mean, I love living in Irvine. And, you know, when I come back at the end of the summer, I'm, you know, sort of happy to have some, you know, peace and quiet. <laughs> but, you know, it's it's sort of the opposite. It's, you know, it's a modern bustling city with a lot of lot to do lots of culture great museums just I love I'm uh, I love just walking around um, I've always whenever I go to a new place I always you know just walk for hours and I've been doing it Seoul is certainly not new to me anymore but I still every time every year I go I still find new things and it changes so much as well so it's just a fantastic city it's my favorite city in the world I guess that's why I spend so much time there Excuse me for a moment, Professor, just to update my listeners. If you joined us late, you're listening to UCI Conversations, and I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer. My special guest today is UCI Professor of English and Asian American Studies, Joseph Jen. Professor, how about your most recent book entitled Vicious Circuits, Korea's IMS Cinema and the End of the American Century? Can you tell us what compelled you to write it? Sure. It's a book that's about the decade or so of cinema after the IMF crisis, which is otherwise known in uh, more generally as the Asian financial crisis, which happened in 1997 and 1998. It was the worst economic crisis in Korean history. And it wasn't just a bad crisis. Part of the, the discussion in the book is about the way it kind of fundamentally transforms economic and social life in South Korea moving forward. And the, the studies uh, about what I call IMF cinema or Korea's IMF cinema, the basic insight of the book or the sort of foundational insight of the book is that, that cinema, because it's the great corporate art, right? It's, it's made as much in the boardroom as it is in the studio, that it's a useful site for thinking about how economies work. Uh, and what distinguishes this moment in Korean cinema is that it seems to be self-reflexively about the economic situation in which it emerges. 
And this is in part because of the way in which the cinema industry, the Korean film industry, was given a special kind of status and almost thought of in some ways as a kind of literally as an industry, as sort of as a site of industrial production. It was granted during the 90s the status of semi-manufacturing. And so because of this particular, the particular uh, place it occupies in Korean culture and Korean history, the argument of the book is that it's a useful place for thinking about how the economy works and the sort of what the transformations in the economy mean for workers, for youth, for women's issues, et cetera, et cetera. With that economic crisis, what caused it? Well, it's a liquidity crisis. Originally, it was about in the 90s, you know, there was a a lot of short-term loans that would just sort of turn over as a matter of course. But because of some, you know, currency fluctuation, the the valuation of currency, um, those loans stopped, right? And so there was a kind of immediate liquidity crisis. And that doesn't sound like the biggest deal, but it was. I mean, there, there was, it's actually a little bit like the situation now that, you know, people were losing their jobs, hundreds of thousands of people losing their jobs. The suicide rate spiked uh, during those years and actually actually hasn't come down since then. A morose kind of thing, I guess, a phenomena they called IMF suicides, uh, where people were jumping off bridges uh, that crossed the Han River in Seoul. So it was a really serious, uh, serious economic crisis. And part of, part of the, yeah, go ahead. Just to add a little perspective, I actually had the opportunity to go to Japan in uh, 1990 which I think is related to what you're talking about, because I remember just gazing at some of the modern areas of Tokyo and thinking, like, this country is going to take over the world. They were a financial juggernaut. That that's just was the feeling that you know, they were so successful and nothing was going to stand in their way. I think we're talking about the same crisis. Do you know if we are? No, it's a different crisis. It was 10 years oh. before. Oh. And in Japan, it had more to do with, I think, the real estate bubble, right? But, and, and then stagflation. Well, so, interesting. But it's a similar phenomenon in the sense that it ends a kind of long run of rapid development and growth. The Korean economy is nicknamed the miracle on the Han for its, you know, emergence from really just abject poverty after, after the Korean War to by the 80s uh, was, you know, a very, very formidable economy. I think these days it's around 12th in the world. But just that's an, you know, considering from where it started, it's a kind of extraordinary, extraordinary change. Uh, it's right. a little bit, it's similar to the to Japan's story. But Japan, I mean, uh, Japan at some point was, I think, the second largest economy in the world, right? And which is, you know, kind of so. amazing for, you know, a relatively small country. Obviously, uh, Korean cinema has come a long way. Sure. Jeez, a Best Picture Award this year. Yeah, this is where we actually... At our center, at the Center for Critical Korean Studies, we threw together. I mean, we were all surprised, actually. I, you know, we were happy that it was nominated. We thought it had a very good chance for. Um, oh, the, the Academy just changed the the, the name of the. It, it, I think they call it Best International Film now. It used to be Best Foreign uh, Film. Uh, we thought it had a chance for that award, but when it won Best Picture, we were all surprised. So we threw together an event. <laughs> and we, uh, I'm not sure if you've seen the movie, but there's this um, 
uh, it's a, a famous, it famously invents a dish called japokuri, which is like a combination of two different kinds of ramen. And uh, we served that at the, <laughs> at the, uh, at the event. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was a lot of fun. It's interesting the name of the center, Critical Korean Studies. Yes. Were you involved with the formation of the center? It started the year before I arrived, but the founding director, my colleague, Kyungyun Kim, I've known for many years. Uh, he's also a scholar of Korean film and a pioneering scholar in the field. So I've known him for many years and I knew he was working on this. The critical part is a nod to UCI's well-known and important tradition in critical theory. So we, 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 I think the, although I wasn't part of naming it, um, I think the, the, the effort was to, to think about what's specific about UCI and to think of the center as in relationship to our specific history. I think I read on your website, is the center funded by the South Korean government? It's funded by an agency called the Academy of Korean Studies, AKS associated with the Korean government, but it's not as though like, you know, the Senate, you know, the Korean parliament votes to give us money or anything like that. It's a separate agency. But yeah, that, that's our, our primary funding is from uh, the Academy of Korean Studies. We got a really generous grant for five years. So we're in our fourth year of the initial five years. We're up for renewal next year. And it's a seed grant. So the idea of the grant is that it helps get things started We've tried very hard and we're continuing our efforts for fundraising to try to endow the center. And that's our ultimate goal. So if any of your listeners are interested, uh, please contact me and I'd love to tell you more about our center. And that's where we are. So we're, we're trying to grow the center to give it a permanent place at UCI. And so far, I think we've been pretty successful. You know, obviously we're still young and developing, but pretty successful in what we're trying to do. Is the center actually located in Humanities Gateway? Yeah, we have actually have a physical office in uh, Humanities Gateway. We have a dedicated administrator for the center who handles, you know, he's amazing. His name is Juhun Shin. He, he handles, uh, you know, everything from scheduling to helping visiting scholars with visas and programming and everything. So that's our physical location. But we have faculty from all over the university, not just in the School of Humanities. And, you know, we really think of ourselves as responding to the needs of not just the university at large, but also the community um, in Southern California and Orange County. I was surprised to see a stat that uh, 22% of the uh, students at UCI are Korean. Is, did I read that correctly? I don't have the numbers in front of me, but that's uh, that that. That no. sounds right. <laughs> that sounds yeah. right. I'm not sure about that, but yeah, g- generally speaking, I, you know, I, I didn't realize it was that high. That seems like a, I mean, that's a big chunk of uh, our population. Well, you know, the Southern California area has always been an important place for Koreans and Korean Americans. There's a kind of old joke that Los Angeles is the fourth largest city in Korea because if you collected all of the population in this, you know, the greater Los Angeles area, it would amount to being the fourth largest city in Korea. So the Korean community here is really visible. It's uh, really prominent, particularly in Irvine, gotten mm. people in positions of leadership. Those numbers make sense. And that's why I think uh, UCI is a really perfect place for this kind of center. What is it about, you, know, you said that you know, South Korea has come from abject 
poverty at, at some point now to being a very successful economic country. Can you define that? Define that in like, terms of... Like how, you know, is it just the, the drive of the Korean people? Is it, can you define how they have done that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a combination of things, right? It's, some of it is cultural. It's, it, you know, it's the desire to emerge out of not just war, but, you know, the first half of the 20th century, Korea is under Japanese rule, right? Under Japanese colonialism. Mm-hmm. But it's also, you know, historically the, the partnership with the United States. And then some of it is a kind of vexed history. You know, so some of the largest periods of growth were under authoritarian rule. So particularly during, you know, the 60s, the 1960s. So there's a lot of different, there's a lot of different reasons for it and a lot of different sort of elements that go into that. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and my guest today is UCI English and Asian American Studies Professor Joseph Jun. He is also the director of the Center for Critical Korean Studies, which has recently put together a webinar focusing on the success of South Korea's fight of COVID-19. We now focus on the coronavirus in the interview. I know that you are having a um, webinar with some selected guests looking at how the handling of COVID-19 in South Korea, which is looked at very, like they've done an incredible job of containing the pandemic there. Can you share with us why they've been so successful? Uh, Sure. You know, you read in the news, and this comes from the government itself, is that it's a sort of three-pronged approach, which is test, trace, and isolate. So they have, you know, the highest level of testing in the world. Very early on, test kits were quick and effective. Test kits were developed and disseminated. One of the speakers in the, in the webinar, Helen Shaw Roberts, is the president of Seijin Technologies. They developed a test, a COVID-19 test, and it's uh, being used all over the world right now. So they were able to develop the technology really quickly. They were also able to develop a system, you know, this is where we have it here in the United States to a certain degree now, but, you know, drive-in testing very early on where people could just like little, like they didn't have to leave their car, they could get tested in their cars. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, a, a crucial part of it was just really widespread and very quickly ramped up testing. If you remember, um, I don't know if you, uh, I'm sort of obsessed with uh, my alma mater, Johns Hawkins, has a coronavirus, you know, global tracker. Right. Um, and the early days of the crisis, you know, when, it, you know, the numbers hadn't really increased yet that much in the United States, you know, Korea was at the top of that list. In, I remember. It was a site of early contagion. There was a church in Daegu, a, a sort of, some people called a cult, is responsible for a, a large part of those early early cases. And it kind of exploded very quickly at that point, the government was under a, a lot of criticism. You know, people thought they were mishandling the situation. And that obviously changed very rapidly. So they were able to develop this system to test and then also, uh, uh, crucially, contact tracing. Like, everybody has a, um, there's an app now that when you land in Seoul, you, you have to, in order to enter the country, you have to download it. And whenever there is a case, everybody is notified, like, where the person had been, right? So that you know that if you'd been to that place, that it's probably smart of you to get 
get tested as well, they were very quick and decisive in terms of locking down, you know, public life, right? So that, you know, people were, and for quite an extended period of time, working from home and staying out of public places. But beyond that, I mean, uh, you know, like, uh, it's a very well thought out and systematic response. I had a friend that landed in Korea to, to spend time with his family. He's, you know, Korean national. And he actually detailed everything that happened and, you know, the system in place for, you know, people entering Korea by plane. And, you know, they were taken to on a specific bus that was contained to a testing facility. Then they had to spend a night at a a hotel that was run at that moment by the government. Mm. Uh, They were given food. (laughs) Mm. Uh, He said that actually the food was actually quite good. Mm -hmm. Uh, They were given, you know, masks and things like that. Their garbage was taken away and dealt with in a special way. So it was this incredibly systematized, organized response. And it was really effective. I think there was actually a very, in the past week or so, another small uptick. There was a, not a, there was a significant uptick uh, because of an incident of spread around some nightclubs um, in Seoul. But for the most part, it's been a really successful and widespread and well thought out response to the crisis. I wonder why, you know, if they're in hindsight, it's twenty twenty. But if the testing was so effective in South Korea, why has it been such a hodgepodge in the United States? Did we just not identify that that was a good one to use? I think it's it, that test, the, the Korean test, is being used in the United States now. I think it took a while to acquire it. You know, I, I don't want to speak too much about the United States situation. Uh, you know, I'm like everybody else. I'm just watching on a daily basis and trying to sort of figure out and try to understand what's going on. I mean, yeah. obviously, there's different kinds of challenges. It's a much larger country, a much larger population. But, you know, I really wish that the kinds of response that happened in Korea could happen here as well. Back to uh, the Center for Critical Korean Studies, what is your mission? Well, our goal, let me start with that, is to be the best Korean Studies Center in the United States. And the mission is sort of, uh, has sort of three different elements to it. We support research at the university. Uh, We support the scholarly aspects of Korean studies, both from faculty, we have fantastic faculty, we want to support their research. We also have top-notch graduate programs, and we want to do what we can. We've been very successful in the past in placing our graduate students' university positions uh, all over the world, in the United States and, uh, and elsewhere. We want to support students as well. That's the sort of second part. Our, we have a kind of educational mission. We support language teaching, students who want to learn the Korean language. We support uh, summer travel to Korea to for more language or other kinds of educational opportunities. And then finally, we have a community outreach mission. We are deeply invested in becoming a hub that connects uh, the university to, you know, Orange County and to the greater Los Angeles area in general. So those are the three things that we kind of try to do. We try to orchestrate them so that there's some synergy between those three different aspects of the mission. Can I say one more thing about the center? Sure. I, I did want to say in terms of the, the, the public-facing aspect of the mission, I, just, I guess I wanted just to mention a few events that we've had over the, uh, the past few years. Sure. Uh, this year, we had a uh, hip-hop concert by a legendary Korean hip-hop artist named Tiger JK and Yoon Mi-rae. 
and Busy was the other guy. And this was in uh, the Barclay Theater. It was great fun. It was in the uh, it was in October. I guess just to give you a picture of how the center works, you know, this was a big concert that you know uh, everybody was invited to. It was sold out. Um, we had Curtis Blow as the opening, the legendary rapper uh, Curtis Blow as the opening act. But it was also uh, uh, that day from the morning through the afternoon there was a conference, an academic conference about hip hop in relationship to Korea. And so, you know, that's the kind of thing that we like to do, both uh, something that is of interest to the community at large, but also has a kind of a scholarly element to it as well. The year before, we had a, a conference on the Korean comfort women, who were women conscripted as basically sexual slaves for the Japanese army. So we've had a whole bunch of programming that tries to address both Korean culture and also kind of crucial Korean issues, uh, whether they're historical or have to do with, you know, the economy or have to do with popular culture. Thanks for uh, adding that, Professor. You know, while we're talking about Korean culture, you have to talk about North Korea at some point. Sure. Uh, How do you perceive the, the relationship between South and North Korea? Well, it's obviously a crucial aspect of South Korean life. The Korean Peninsula is one of the places in the world where the Cold War never ended. And, you know, it's like, uh, you know, you see when you're on the trains, uh, the subway trains in Seoul, like warnings about spies and stuff like that. Mm. And, you know, uh, on a fairly regular basis, particularly in the last past few decades, as the North Korean missile program has ramped up, it's a part of everyday life. South Koreans are pretty used to it in some degree. I mean, I remember uh, this past, a few years ago, I think it was actually around the time when I was in Seoul, it was a moment where, uh, of, of escalation. Uh, North Korea was testing missiles. Mm-hmm. This is the very early part of the Trump administration. Trump seemed to be particularly invested in uh, what North Korea was doing. And, you know, people were, in the United States, we're talking like is wondering was this going to be a war? I remember there was a there was some incident where um, uh, people believed that uh, Hawaii was under uh, under threat of uh, a nuclear attack, and there was a you know uh, some kind of um, you know uh, warning. Yeah, a warning that took place there. But I remember in when I was in Korea itself, the Koreans Koreans were basically like, yeah, you know it'll be okay. You know, there's a sort of <laughs> resignation, not just a resignation, uh, but also a kind of, you know, we can get through this kind of uh, 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 feeling. It's, it's part of, part of daily life there. I mean, which isn't to say it's not serious or anything like that, but just that, you know, uh, some version of that has been happening for, you know, what now, 70 years, almost 70 years. North Korea, boy, it's, it's such a mysterious country. Do do South Koreans perceive it like that? It it, it seems like a dark place. You know, on one hand, you hear about that they don't have enough food. On the other hand, they have this robust missile program. Yeah, I mean, I I would say that it's uh, South Koreans think about North Korea is it's definitely less mysterious than than most people in the United States think about it. And it's partly because that, um, you know, the, the Korean War famously divided families, right? So a lot of people have, you know, families, you know, parts of their family that they haven't seen in many years or many generations, actually. And 
you know, I think there's a sense that, you know, there's a kind of abiding sense, despite all of the sort of Cold War antagonism that, you know, it's, there's a kind of abiding sense that they're the same people somehow, you know, mm-hmm. that it's a kind of political division, but not necessarily a, you know, uh, you know, there's a very strong desire on the part of a lot of Koreans for unification, for example. So I think that's, of course, there's some of that, uh, uh, that mysteriousness that you talk about. I mean, like, for example, right now, nobody's really certain whether uh, or not Kim Jong-un is dead or alive. Um, and that, that is definitely mysterious. Like, uh, you know, it'd be really, uh, people are, uh, there's a kind of dearth of information. And I guess dearth of, you know, when, when those kinds of situations uh, arise, when, when people don't have enough information, then it's bound to be mysterious. But I guess I would push back on just the, I mean, I think that kind of aura of mysteriousness, that aura of, you know, it's this strange land that we can't account for, in some ways comes out of Cold War uh, discourse and Cold War logics. You know, increasingly, a lot of uh, people have been able to travel to North Korea. I know Personally, lots of people that have gone. I have, I've never been myself, but, you know, Americans that have gone. And it's very different place, right? It's governed by different principles and different laws and a different way of life. I'm not sure it's as mysterious as sometimes we make it out to be. Would you like to go there someday? To North Korea? Yeah. I mean, I'm curious. You know, I would like to see it. I'm not sure I'd want to go. <laughs> I mean, uh, uh. Um, I'm a little uh, less adventurous than some of my friends, a bit older, I <laughs> a family. Um, but absolutely, I mean, I, I, I'm absolutely curious. I mean, some of the most beautiful mountains are in North Korea. And, you know, I'm always curious about new places, but I'm a little conservative when it comes to my travel yeah. uh, horizons, I guess. Right, gotcha. You are listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer. And my guest today is English and Korean studies professor Joseph Jun. In the interview, we now turn to his writing process. Here we go. Back to your writing. What gives you confidence as a writer? Confidence as a writer. You know, I'm a, I don't know what it is. Like I, my family is from a pretty remote rural area. I'm talking about, you know, generations a few generations ago my parents lived in Seoul but before then they were kind of from a remote area and I went back there a number of years ago to visit and you know people work in the rice fields or they work at factories and things like that and I always I'd sometimes think you know if it weren't for certain accidents there, if certain things were different in my life you know that could be me I feel like you know just a few generations removed from peasantry and so what does this have to do with writing for me it's like <laughs> Somehow, I don't know if it's genetic or whatever, but, you know, I'm a worker bee. Like, I like to do it, to, to do work on writing on a regular basis. You know, I, I don't, like, stay up late at night and I don't have these flashes of inspiration. I just kind of, like, do it every day. And then, you know, it moves along. Some days are better than others. Obviously, when I'm teaching, during the, the academic year, you know, I have other kinds of responsibilities and that's, uh, yeah. it's more difficult to have these kinds of regular hours of work. But when, you know, uh, I'm actually focused on the writing and the research, I, I guess that's the way I kind of approach it. I just, mm-hmm. I just try to hack at it for, you know, a number of hours every day. If I can do, uh, I usually break it up into a couple sessions, you know, like three hours, two or three hours at, at, at a time. And if I can do 
two or three of those a day, that's a really, really productive and, and good day. But for me, it's about, it's, um, I don't know, I, some people, I've had uh, colleagues and students who, you know, can make outlines, for example, and they just like think through the whole chapter or article or whatever. Uh, and then like, they just write they know in. where they're going. Yeah. I've been yeah. heard like, oh, you, you have to know where you're going. And I'm, I, I, that's not quite me, I don't think. Yeah, I'm the same way. I have a general sense, uh, yeah. but so much of writing is exploratory for me. And then what that means, though, is I have really messy drafts. Uh, they're, <laughs> you know, they're just horrible at, at, at the beginning. And it's just important for me, and it's just to produce pages and get it all out. And then the revision, I think I spend a lot more time in revision than most people do. Uh, it takes me a long time to, to make that initial draft less awful. And then one day I read it and, and I think, oh, that's not bad. Uh, I think this is okay. And then, then, I, <laughs> then I send it off to, to publish it. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a whittler, I, I guess. Say the part again. A, whitt a whittler? Is that, am I saying that right? Like, a whittler. A yeah, whittler. Whittler, yes, yes. yes. So, so is the, you know, I, I, I'm just exploring this. It's like, so does writing allow you to have epiphanies? I mean, is that the payoff? I mean, is, I, mean I, I hate to put it down to uh, minimize it. Well, that's how I make my living. So I have to write this. But is, there, is it like the process of writing and then you get to an epiphany or would you describe yeah. it like that or, or is it something else? I mean, uh, when I think of the word epiphany, I think of the, you know, the romantic poet, you know, from the, what, the 19th century, 18th, 19th, 18th to 19th century, where, you know, the heavens open up and, you know, this idea. <laughs> and it's never like that. It's always sort of, uh, I tend to, I kind of walk a lot or try to do sort of low level, you know, some kind of low level exercise when I'm trying to think. So uh, when I was a kid, I had to mow lawns. Uh, and, and I thought, you know, my, I remember my, you know, how active my brain was when I was mowing the lawn because basically yeah. my body was, you know, occupied with this, you know, yeah. task that was not super difficult, but enough to kind of, you know, uh, yeah. occupy me. Uh, yeah. And then my brain could kind of wander. Um, so, you know, I go for a bike ride or walk. Um, and it's always just sort of little things, you know, you think, oh, yeah, that's that's how I should write that sentence. And that helps me get to the next thing. And, you know, that helps me get to the next thing. And eventually, you know, um, you know, it, it comes out the way I want it to. And it's also not solitary that, you know, I have a a working group that I work with uh, here at ECI. And I've also had lots of friends over the years who have been kind enough to give me feedback. And so I try also to make it a social process rather than an individual lonely process. Mm. Um, because I think ultimately scholarly writing and, you know, I don't do creative writing. I only do scholarly writing. Mm. You know, it's, it's ultimately, uh, it's, I mean, some people try to write the final word on whatever, you know, the final word on their topic and they you know, mm -hmm. produce these huge tomes. And for me, it's not that at all. It's actually, in some ways, the first word. It's the beginning of a conversation, right? And I think of it much more in these sort of conversational uh, uh, terms than I do think of it as, you know, uh, imposing a certain kind of intellectual authority or something like that. Well, what does scholarly writing mean? Well, it's, you know, like it's, uh, you know, like my book about Korean cinema, it's, you know, it's mm. not, it's not, I guess I'm opposing it just, it sort of in the most general terms to creative writing. 
Uh, it's mm. nonfiction. Um, mm. And it's, you know, it's research based. You know, I spent mm. a long time in archives. There's a lot of reading, a mm. lot of footnotes in, in these books, pages and pages. Of mm -hmm. footnotes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't want to make too strong of a distinction between creative and academic writing. Uh, I think there's an element of creativity to academic writing. And I think there's obviously elements of research in creative writing. But um, yeah, just in terms of genre, I guess that's, that's, Mm. Uh, that's how I'd make the distinction. Is it important in your writing, like, you know, I'm actually working on a speech. At, I'm in Zotspeak Toastmasters on campus. And um, my first paragraph is, um, and I showed it to a, a, a friend of mine, and, and um, I th well, it's actually about uh, a concentration camp. It's a story about a concentration camp couple that meet at the concentration camp, but, but the story started off basically was this first paragraph of a generalized, you know, it was World War II and it was Auschwitz and it was terrible and, you know, hundreds, thousands of people were being killed. But, and she's like, it's so gen, I mean, she wasn't being harsh, but it just, there was, it was just this generalized statement that wasn't really, you know, it's kind of, everybody kind of knows the story. So you're kind of just repeating what people know. I, it, from a scholarly standpoint, do you focus in on, on paragraphs like that? Do you focus in on the, on the opening? Like I need to grab my audience right here or, or is it different? Yeah, I guess I would say two things. One, and just in terms of the stylistic things, um, I like hooks. I'm, you know, I, yeah. I, uh, yeah. you know, I, maybe I think of this as like, in some ways I think of it, is you know as if it were like a pop song, I, you know. Yeah. Um, so I, I try to, you know, uh, think about the first sentence and about not just laying out, you know, the issue and and um, and the argument, but just trying to think of a, a useful way of getting people into the sort of headspace uh, or my headspace uh, in order to engage the specifics of the argument. But the other thing I'd say is uh, more technical that, you know, what I think about is, and what I talk to my graduate students about constantly is, you know, what is the conversation that you're entering? What have people been saying? What are the assumptions? What is regarded as accepted knowledge? What's controversial? Where are the fault lines? Uh, and then what's your intervention in that? You know, and it's a very basic kind of thing is, you know, what are you bringing to this conversation? How is your intervention in this conversation going to change that conversation or mm -hmm. lead to open up uh, different avenues for thought? Hmm. Yeah. Wow. That opens things up for me. I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. That's well, I mean, I, all my all my conversations with my graduate students, I always say to them, probably to the point of annoyance, like I always say, you know, what is the question that you're trying to answer here? Um, mm -hmm. And it's such a simple thing to say, but when you're writing, it's really often it's really easy to kind of you know uh, get too you know deep in the weeds and focus on minutia rather than the 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 real. Uh, overarching project and goal of whatever piece of writing right. you're doing. Right, right. Very, very good. P Professor, It's it's been a, a fascinating hour. Thanks so much for shedding light on the Center for Critical Korean Studies 
and your specific world in, in English and writing, and also with the Korean contribution to solving this pandemic crisis that we're in. Just, you know, your center is doing its part to bring the, the dynamic minds that are making a difference in this area. So thank you very much for being with us. Well, thank you very much for having me. And we, uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk a little bit about the center and, and what it's doing. And I guess I would just say to your audience that, you know, it's, our, our doors are open. So if you'd like to get on the mailing list, just contact me. And yeah, come check us out. Thank you very much. Thank you again to Professor Joseph Jun, J-E-O-N, for his insights into writing, Korea, and COVID-19. If you're interested to find out more about UCI's Korea Connection, simply Google UCI Critical Korean Studies. More information about the COVID-19 webinar can also be found there. Now coming up next at 5 p.m., on KUCI is Entrepreneur Nation with Ash Kumra exploring new niches of the business world every week. And thank you again, as always, to piano man Fred Kaplan for all the piano sounds on my show. He says just the right tone. You're listening to UCI Conversations, where every week we explore another corner of the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and zot, 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 everyday anteaters. Tune in every Tuesday at 4 p.m., or you can always go to my podcast website at www.bossenmeyer.com. That's www.b as in Bravo, O-S-S as in Sierra, E-N is in November, M as in Mike, E-Y as in Yankee, E-R, www.bossenmeyer.com. I can also always be reached at my email at kboss at kuci.org. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer. It's been a blast. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, social distance, wash your hands, and I like to say my prayers too. Have a great evening. So long, everybody.